Amen. Well, church, if you're going to grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of John. Gospel of John, chapter 3. We're going to continue on in our study of this gospel because it's a church family. And as always, let me encourage you to to follow along in God's Word as we read and study it together. If you're new to the Bible, the, the larger numbers in your Bible are the chapter divisions. Those smaller numbers are the verse markers. So we're going to uh, pick it up today in chapter 3. It's a big number. And then the smaller numbers are the verses, verses 1 through 21, Lord willing. <clears throat> well, this past week, I found myself seated in the optometrist chair at Costco uh, getting fitted for a pair of glasses. My last pair of glasses snapped in two last Sunday, and so I, I uh, need a new pair. And I've worn glasses or contact lenses since high school, but before I started wearing them, it was, it was years. It took years of blurry vision before I actually realized I needed glasses. Um, you know, this, this idea of your eyes getting blurry, this kind of happens gradually. You don't even realize it's happening. So it, I assumed... I assumed for a while in middle school that everyone couldn't read stop on the stop sign until you're about 10 feet from it. I, I thought it was normal to squint at the blackboard trying to see what the teacher was writing. I thought it was normal to see people at far distances as just fuzzy blobs. That was normal for me. It wasn't until a doctor told me, your eyes aren't working. It wasn't until I heard the doctor tell me that that I finally realized I couldn't see. Friends, in chapter 2, in John chapter 2, Jesus performed his first public miracle uh, in turning water into wine at a wedding. And then we saw in the next scene in chapter 2, when the Jews uh, came to him after he cleansed the temple and flipped the tables over, they, they demanded a sign from Jesus that he would prove his authority. Give us a sign to prove your authority for doing these things and cleansing the temple. And in response, Jesus points forward to his future resurrection. John, the Apostle John, calls Jesus' miracles signs. He calls them signs because they're actually designed for a purpose. They're designed to reveal that Jesus is the Christ. That Jesus is the Son of God. That's why the Gospel of John exists. And so if we want to find Life, not a counterfeit life, but real life, we must have our eyes corrected. We must see Jesus rightly. The problem is, every human being without exception is born with a spiritual eyesight problem. And it's a problem far worse than we realize. It's a problem far worse that it's so bad, it's not even a pair of glasses can fix. In John 3, what we're going to see is Jesus comes onto the scene as a sort of spiritual optometrist who not only diagnoses our vision problem, he makes the blind see. We know this because John says in John 9, 39, Jesus says, I came into this world that those who do not see may see. All right. How then can we see Jesus rightly? That's the question we want to ask this morning. How can we make sure that we see Jesus rightly that we may live? 
Point number one. If you're taking notes this morning, point number one is this. You must be born again. You must be born again. And we're going to see this in verses 1 through 10 of our text. So let's, let's look to God's word, chapter 3, verses 1 through 10. Let me read God's word to us. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So the focus in chapter 3 is on this interaction, this dialogue between Nicodemus and Jesus. And in verse 1, John gives us several details that we should highlight about who Nicodemus is. First of all, we're told that he's a Pharisee. And second of all, we're told that he is a ruler of the Jews. Now, for those of you who have read through the Gospels before, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, for some who read the Gospels, you might think of Pharisee as kind of a synonym for hypocrite. You know, the Pharisees are seen as the bad guys who are hostile to Jesus. And there's good reason to think that. When you read Matthew 23, uh, Jesus is not very kind to the Pharisees there. But if we had a time machine that we could all get into right now and go back to the first century, we would see that the Pharisees were respected. These were the disciplined. These were like the, these were like the Navy SEALs of the spiritual leaders. Um, they were moral. They were uh, well-studied. They knew their Old Testaments really well. That's why in verse 10, Jesus refers to Nicodemus as the teacher of Israel. In other words, Nicodemus is, the thing that we're meant to see about him is that he is a model, upright citizen in Israel. If Nicodemus enters the room, you stood up in respect. So we're told that Nicodemus came to Jesus, and he came under the cloak of darkness. He came at night. And in verse 2, he says to Jesus, Rabbi, which means teacher, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless you, and that you do unless God is with him. So he sees Jesus as a powerful teacher, and he recognizes that in verse 2. The problem is, is that Jesus is far more than just a good teacher. He's far more than a colleague of 
Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a teacher, he's a rabbi, and he addresses Jesus as rabbi, and he, he's right to recognize that, but he's much more than a teacher, much more than a, a colleague. Nicodemus believes, in one sense, he believes Jesus' signs. But here's where we need to be careful. There's a big difference between believing that Jesus can do something and believing in the sense that you entrust your life to him. James 2.19 says that even the demons believe and they shudder. There's a, there's a sense of believing that's not saving belief. And I think this is what's happening. We saw it back in chapter 2, verse 25. Jesus knew it was in man. He did not entrust himself to them. We see what's going on. We're beginning to see what's going on in the heart of Nicodemus. Nicodemus says what he knows, what he sees about Jesus in verse 2. Rabbi, we know, this is what I know, we know that you're a teacher. But he does not yet see that he should bow down and worship Jesus. Yeah, you're a teacher, but he's still blind to the fact that he should be worshiping Jesus. So in verse 3, Jesus wastes no time showing Nicodemus what he doesn't yet know. Truly, truly, he says, I say to you, in verse 3, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot see the kingdom of God. The kingdom here is God. The way we can define that is God dwelling with his people in his place under his rule. The kingdom of God is God's people dwelling in his place under God's rule. Ever since Adam and Eve were exiled from the Garden of Eden because of sin, the people of God have hoped, they have looked forward to God's promised restoration of his kingdom here on earth. The Jews knew about this. Nicodemus knew about this. But they thought that the ticket into the kingdom of heaven was obedience to God's law. So in that sense, if that's the ticket in, then Nicodemus represents the person who's at the front of the line to get in to the kingdom of God. If anybody gets in, it's Nicodemus. And yet Jesus turns that upside down. He says to him, no, you're not seeing this right. The only way to see the kingdom of God is to be born again. Well, this leaves Nicodemus scratching his head. Jesus is flipping his categories upside down. He doesn't know what to do with what he's saying. How can a man enter back into his mother's womb for, for a second time? He, he takes Jesus literally. He's, he's confused. And so in verse 5, Jesus restates it. He says, truly, truly, what I'm, you know, that's, in other words, he, when he says truly, truly, he's saying what I'm about to say is trustworthy. It's faithful. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he repeats what he says, but he emphasizes you must be born of the water and the Spirit. So what does he mean when he says you must be born of the water and of the Spirit? Well, first of all, we need to acknowledge that he's not talking about water baptism. There's nothing in the context that supports that. The focus in John 3 is on the work of God's Spirit. Being born again, as verse 3 says, can actually be translated as born from above. You'll see that in the footnote. If you're reading the ESV, you'll see, you'll see that footnote in the, the translation of the ESV. It can be translated as born from above. In other words, the point is, is that our, he's highlighting our need for a spiritual birth, a birth from above. So the phrase born of water and the spirit is actually language about the new birth, a spiritual birth that the Old Testament actually teaches. 
This is what we heard Pastor Tony read from in Ezekiel 37. And it's also very clear in, 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 in other places in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26, God, far before, far before Jesus actually says this, uh, Ezekiel 36, 25 and 26, Jesus promises this. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. So, in other words, what Ezekiel is saying is we need God to cleanse us from our sin. And God promises in Ezekiel he's going to do that. That's the born of the water part. God will cleanse us from our sin. And secondly, we need a divine heart transplant. That's the born of the spirit part that he's talking about. Friends, if you look at Ezekiel 36's image of, of saying that, you, you know, that left to yourself, your heart is a heart of stone, that image is unsettling. It can almost feel insulting. But actually, it's, it's, it's also hopeful and helpful. Um, I don't normally do this, but I brought a prop today. I brought you a rock. My boys found this in the woods, and this is your heart on sin. I want you to look at this, and let's think about what, is a, what does a heart of stone do? Let's see. What does it do? Nothing, right? It's unresponsive. It doesn't get excited. It doesn't move. It doesn't answer. And, and that's the point. No matter how compelling or how beautiful or how urgent the time may be, a heart of stone does nothing. You can put the Mona Lisa in front of it. You can put it in front of the Grand Canyon. You can offer it a million dollars. You can put the most perfection of beauty, God, in front of a stone of heart, and the heart of stone does nothing. It's unresponsive. In other words, Ezekiel's image of saying that we have a heart of stone and needs to be translated shows us how disastrous, how deadly sin is on the human heart. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 6. The wages of sin is death. But even before Paul, in Genesis 2, God told Adam and Eve not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Genesis 2, 17. Adam and Eve rebelled. They ate the fruit even though God told them not to. And like Nicodemus, they remained physically alive. Their hearts beated, their lungs breathed for a little while longer. But spiritually, they died the instant they ate of that fruit and disobeyed God. And their heart, their spiritual heart, turned to a heart of stone. It was now unresponsive to God. Now listen, there's not kind of dead. There's not 54% dead. You're either dead or you're alive. And Nicodemus represents the person who seems, as a, he seems to be the best shot to get into the kingdom of heaven, humanly speaking. But here's the point despite looking really good on the outside and impressive and respectable and moral, he was still spiritually dead as a rock. 
unresponsive and blind to the truths of God. He could not see. And so Jesus says to him, if you want to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. And friends, Jesus is not just picking on Nicodemus. The same is true for every one of us. When we entered this world, we were, you and I, when we entered this world, you and I were born dead. We were kind of spiritual zombies. Our hearts are beating, we're walking around, we're having conversations, but spiritually, we have a heart of stone. We're born dead in our trespasses and our sins. That's Ephesians 2, verse 1. Left to ourselves, our spiritual hearts, our hearts of stone, we are dead. That's the consequences of sin. And that's why Jesus, that's why Jesus does not just suggest that Nicodemus or we be born again. He does not talk about being born again as some optional kind of second-level Christianity. You've got the born-again Christians and you've got the normal Christians. No, no, I know, that that's how, I know that's how it's talked about in the world. That, isn't, that category does not exist biblically. You're either born again or you're dead. In verse 7, he says, you must, it's not optional, you must be born again. And it's necessary because until we are born again, we are as spiritually responsive as a rock. When it comes to God, when it comes to the Bible, when it comes to salvation, when it comes to our desire for coming to church, we are as spiritually responsive as a rock. The new birth, my friends, is necessary to see the kingdom of heaven. But the new birth is also supernatural. Part of what Jesus is highlighting for us is that this new birth is a work of God. God does it. I'm 40 years old, I, but I, I, I did not choose to be born in 1980 in the state of Nebraska. You know, you know what I did to be born in Nebraska in 1980? Nothing. In the same way, friends, this is sobering, in the same way, the spiritual dead do not make themselves born again. It is a supernatural work of God. God must do it. Where is that in the text? Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. It's hard to see in the English, but the Greek word for wind and the Greek word for spirit is the exact same word. It just depends on the context. It's pneuma, right? In the new birth, the Spirit of God is sovereign. God is free. The new birth is not a matter of us pushing this button or pulling this lever and out comes the child of God. I kind of wish it was sometimes. We, we kind of wish it was, but that's not how it works. God, the sovereign God, is the one who brings about the new birth. The wind blows where it wishes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. We are not in control. God is. Friends, if you go to the hospital tomorrow and you have a sore thumb, and you go to the hospital thinking it's a bad sprain. The doctor looks at it and then turns around and says, I've got some hard news for you. We actually need to amputate your arm below your elbow. 
you realize how bad your problem is by the remedy that is prescribed. Nicodemus comes to Jesus thinking that they're colleagues, thinking that they're fellow rabbis. He assumes that he's a shoe-in for the kingdom of heaven. And then Jesus says to him, no, you must be born again. Your sin is so destructive in your life, it's left you dead. Your heart is a stone. It's hard to hear. It feels insulting to our accomplishments and our pride. But it is true. The remedy prescribed shows how serious our problem is. And Jesus says, it's so serious, you need to be born again. It's hard to hear, but it's the path of hope. It's the path of life. So if, if we're looking at verses 1 through 10, how do we apply what we're seeing in verses 1 through 10? Lots of things we could say. Let me offer two suggestions. First, the new birth should foster in us Humble gratitude. Humble gratitude. If you, friends, listen, if you're here today and you in some measure love God and love his people, love his church, if there's something in you, even if it's a small spark that hungers for righteousness and for truth, if you find in yourself some desire to obey God and to put your sin to death, if that's in you at all, it could be faint. It could be weak. It could be imperfect, but it's there. It's there because God has made you alive together with Christ. Being born again is not an accomplishment that we boast about. It's a grace of God that we are thankful for. God's grace in the new birth destroys self-righteousness. And it shapes how we treat each other as the family of God. If you want a homework assignment on this, this afternoon, read Ephesians 2. That's where Paul talks about the new birth. You're made alive together with Christ. Then read Ephesians 4. That's Paul's application of the new birth. Ephesians 2 is the new birth. Ephesians 4 is the application. Well, what do we do? Read Ephesians 4. If you're born again, that's what you should do. All right. So the first application is humble gratitude. The new birth should foster humble gratitude. Second application, it should give us confident hope. It should give us confident hope. About five years ago, a young couple visited our church, and they were seeking one of the pastors to help, and so I began to meet with them. And they were going through a rough spot, um, and the husband at the time was not a Christian. So in addition to the marriage counseling that I was doing uh, with them, I repeatedly unpacked and shared the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel, with him. But I, I remember vividly when it came to this concept of sin, he kept saying, yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I just, I just don't think I need it. I, I, I'm not sure I'm that bad. And so after meeting with me, then he met with Mike Rogers, and he and Mike read through the gospel of Mark together. And again, the same thing. The ideas made sense to him, but the gospel was met with a polite indifference. These meetings went on for months and months. And, and as I observed it, I started to lose hope that he would change. Not only was he unconvinced, not only was he thinking that he didn't have a sin problem, 
the things in his marriage were getting worse. And so when the husband informed me at one point near the end that they were going to a marriage conference to give it one last shot, I remember quietly thinking, oh, this conference isn't very good. This thing is not going to work. I didn't say that, but that's what I was thinking. But I was wrong. The husband went to the conference, not a believer. At the end of the weekend, he came back believing that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He was born again. He was made a new creation. That man is Eric Sohn. <laughs> is Eric here? Well, if you know Eric, uh, these past five years of his life are a wonderful testimony of God's gracious work in his life and in their marriage, and I'm so thankful to God for what he's done in him and their lives. Verse 8 says, the wind blows where it wishes. Where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from, where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Friends, that should be encouraging. If you're fumbling your way through the good news, if you're stuttering as you share the gospel with your fa family member or friend, if you feel like you are a lousy evangelist, take heart. <laughs> Rebirth is not up to you. We go into the spiritual graveyard, and our task is to raise the dead. Praise God. That's not up to us. Rebirth is a supernatural work of God. Is there someone, friends, is there someone in your life that is on the impossible list? Oh, they'll never trust in Christ. Have you lost hope? Have you become cynical? Keep sharing. Keep praying. Keep loving them. God, our God, is free. He is not bound by hearts of stone. He is not bound by your cynicism. He is not bound by our imperfect communication. He is free. And so the same hope is available not only when we, when we share the gospel with a non-believer, the same hope is also available when we suffer the heartbreak of seeing a brother or sister in Christ begin to drift away from God. A wayward child a broken marriage, a, a, a brother or sister in Christ who begins to fall in love with the world. Friends, if you are discouraged or losing hope because someone you love has drifted from God, let me encourage you to reread what Pastor Tony read this morning. Reread Ezekiel 37. It's glorious because when God speaks to a valley of dry, dead bones, what happens? They come to life. God does the new birth. He brings about the new birth, and he can bring the, product, the prodigal home. So don't lose hope. Don't give in to bitter cynicism. Keep praying, keep loving, keep sharing, and keep hoping. Friends, to see the kingdom of God, Jesus made it clear, you must be born again. Second, what else must we do? Number two, you must step into the light. Point number two, you must step into the light. Point number one, you must be born again. Point number two, you must step into the light. That's verses 11 through 21 of our text. Now, let me just say something uh, as a side note. Theologically, if you're wondering what's going on theologically here, verses 1 through 10 
are what the theological term for verses 1 through 10 are is regeneration. That's the theological word for the new birth. So if verses 1 through 10 are about regeneration, that's God's work, then verses 11 through 21 are about conversion. In other words, the fruit of regeneration. And this is our response. So God does the, rebirth, the new birth, and our response is to believe. Our response is to respond with faith and repentance. That's what we're going to see in verses 11 through 21. So look with me at God's word in verse 11. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be, be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works be, should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Now, remember in verse 9, Nicodemus is scratching his head, wrestling with what Jesus is saying, and he says to Jesus in verse 9, How can these things be? In verse 14, Jesus answers this question. In verse 14, Jesus goes back. He, he reaches back to the Old Testament, a story in the Old Testament that Nicodemus knows, and he reaches back there to help him and us understand how these things can be. You can read about the story that he's reaching back to in the Old Testament book of Numbers, chapter 21. There the, the nation was, was um, making their way into the promised land, and they were grumbling and complaining and rebelling against God, and so God sends uh, snakes into the camp that were biting the people. And as a remedy to the the deadly poison of these snakes, God instructs Moses to build a serpent of bronze and wrap it around a pole and then raise up that pole. And whoever looked to the pole with the bronze serpent on it in faith, they would be healed. Their life would be spared. Verse 14. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness so must the Son of Man be lifted up. The verb that Jesus uses, lifted up, has a dual meaning in John's Gospel. It, it means to be lifted up on a cross and crucified, but it also means to be lifted up in the sense that you're exalted, to be glorified. 
Uh, Nicodemus would be familiar with the, t- the title, Son of Man. We, we heard about it from, uh, from the book of Daniel, chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. The Son of Man was, in Daniel 7, described as the Messiah who was, was, was crowned as the eternal king whose dominion would never end and had, and had all authority and all power. So Nicodemus would be familiar with the Son of Man and the authority and the grandeur and the majesty and the authority. But what he might be surprised to hear is that the Son of Man would also suffer. The Son of Man would also suffer a criminal's death. He would be lifted up as a criminal, falsely accused, and die on a cross. Why? Why would the Son of Man, the King of Kings, be lifted up like this. Verse 15. Why? That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So just as the Israelites looked to the serpent, the bronze serpent in the wilderness by faith, Jesus is saying, that illustrates what I'm about to do. I'll be lifted up on a cross, and whoever looks to me in faith, they will have eternal life. The new birth, friends, is possible Nicodemus says, how can this be? The nude birth is possible because of the death, the resurrection, and the glorification of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. That's how the nude birth is possible. So what's the reason that God made this eternal life possible? What is it that motivated God to do this? Friends, listen. If you've kind of drifted off, pay attention right here. Don't miss this. Verse 16 is a verse, a glory, oh, listen, all of God's word is glorious, but this verse reveals to us the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So he's saying, what's the reason that God does this? Why does he make eternal life possible? Verse 16 begins with the word for. Here's the reason. Here's why. The thing that motivated God was his love. For God so loved the world. Now, love is a word that is so overused, it's almost emptied of its meaning. You know, we say, I love pizza, I love this shirt, and it becomes an empty cliche that doesn't mean anything anymore. So we have to pause and say, okay, what what does Jesus mean when he says love? Love here in this context is a word that is defined as a a giving of oneself, a giving what is good for the benefit of another. A giving of what's good for the benefit of another. And then we can fill in that definition with what what Jesus says in, in verse 16. What did God give? His only son. Don't just gloss over that. He didn't just give anything. He didn't give second best. He didn't give what's worthless. He gave his only son, his only beloved son. He held nothing back. He gave his best. He gave his only. He gave his unique. He gave his beloved son. Who is the object of his love? God so loved the world. And by the world, he does not mean the natural world of trees and plants and animals. He means humanity, 
that is in rebellion to God. In John's gospel, the world means humanity that hates God, humanity that is opposed to God, humanity that is at war with God, spitting in his face. For God so loved that world. Friends, that's amazing. That, that just, that's, that's not normal. That's divine. Jesus took on flesh 2,000 years ago knowing full well what it was going to cost him, knowing full well the world hate would hate him and crucify him. He knew it. No one took his life from him. Jesus willingly laid down his life on his own, John 10, verse 18. But we have to be careful here. For some people, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross makes it seem like Jesus is willing but God the Father is reluctant. You ever think about God that way? Some people view God the Father as sitting in the clouds with a lightning bolt waiting for you to screw up, and he just delights in zapping you with lightning bolts when, when, when you screw up. And then Jesus, on the other hand, well, he's the good guy. He's your ally. But that's not true. John 3, verse 16, will not allow you to think that way if you're thinking biblically. John 3.16 says, God, that's God the Father, so loved the world. The, in other words, the work of Christ and the cross is God at work. Jesus came to earth not to change God's mind. Jesus came to this earth to express his mind, to express his heart, to show the Father's love. That's what we saw in the prologue, that Jesus came to make God known. Chapter 1, verse 18. Including his heart that loves the world. There's not good cop, bad cop. There's just God, the Father and God the Son, loving you. Loving a world opposed to him. So friends, when you come to meet Jesus, when you come to meet Jesus, the Jesus of the Bible... Not the Bible, not the Jesus that you hear in the culture, but when you come to meet the Jesus of the Bible, it can be uncomfortable. It is going to be uncomfortable. Just like Nicodemus was squirming in his seat. Because we can't tell Jesus what to do. And Jesus does not mind his own business. Jesus gets in your business, all your business, and he tells you what to do with your business as, his, as the king. But that's why verse 17 is important for us to remember. Look at verse 17 again. Why did God send his son? God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world. But in order that the world might be saved through him. Is it uncomfortable to meet the, the Jesus of the Bible? Yes. But his purpose, however painful it might be, is for our good. He did not come to condemn you. He came to save you. Well, does that mean that the whole world, without exception, does that mean everybody gets saved? No. And John makes that crystal clear. The purpose of Jesus' mission, yes, is to save. He came not to condemn, but to save. But if Jesus' saving work is rejected, then judgment and condemnation is the result. Verse 18. 
Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. I know this doesn't fly well in our world today when we talk about the exclusivity of Jesus, that there's only one way, that there's not multiple roads to to God. But this is the truth. Jesus, in his words, said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So to reject him is to choose death. To not believe him, to not trust him, is to choose condemnation. And as sadly, as we look at Nicodemus, Jesus makes it clear that Nicodemus, up till now, did not receive him. Verse 11, up till now, he did not believe and trust Jesus. Verse 12, and so sadly, at this point in John, Nicodemus stands condemned. Those are sobering words. Verse 2 says that Nicodemus came by night, but he is more in the dark than he realizes. Friends, after looking at the breathtaking and gracious, undeserved love of God in John 3, a natural question is, why in the world would anyone turn this love down? Why would anyone in their right mind say, no thanks, and go the opposite way of Jesus? It's irrational. It's ins- it's, it, it sounds insane to hear what God has done over the top to give his only son to his enemies for our salvation. Say, no thanks. Why would anyone reject him? John provides an answer in verse 19. This is the judgment, verse 19. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Friends, when Jesus enters the room, light enters the room. He is the light of the world. When Jesus enters the room, he flips the lights on. And that means he exposes the darkness for what it is. Left to ourselves, we don't just do bad things. We have a heart problem. The text says we loved the darkness. We hated the light. It's not just that we do bad things. We love the wrong thing. We hate the wrong thing. And, and, and Nicodemus is a tragic, at this point in the story, Nicodemus is a tragic example of somebody who's doing that. He refuses to come into the light because of his pride. He's got a lot to lose. I mean, Jesus comes to him and says, you must be born again, Nicodemus. You're, you're dead. Your heart's a stone. But come on, he's a respectable Pharisee. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's the teacher of Israel. People like him. People respect him. People look up to him. He's not ready to give that up yet. And so rather than coming into the light and having his deeds exposed, like a cockroach that runs into the shadows, he remains in the dark. He says, no thank you. Loves the wrong thing, hates the wrong thing. Friends, recently there's been a lot of best-selling books from authors claiming to have died, gone to heaven, and then come back to tell you about it. It's called Heaven Tourism. 
Uh, let me tell you up ahead of time, don't waste your money on those books. Verse 13, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. So he's saying in verse 13, he alone is the one who is authorized to tell us about heavenly things. Because he alone has been sent by God the Father from heaven to tell us here in John 3 about the problem of sin, about the existence of God, about our need for the new birth, and the way of salvation. You don't need those heaven tourism books. You need Jesus. Friends, sin, listen, sin that rejects the love of Jesus to stay in the darkness, sin is irrational. Sin ignores the truth. Sin suppresses the truth, the truth about God. And we suppress the truth about God in order to pretend that we're in control. We like to play make-believe that we are our own God, but it's only pretending. You know why? Because God is God and you and I are not. In verse 21, he says, whoever does what is true comes to the light. To do what is true means to wake up to the reality that God is God and you and I are not. It's to wake up to the reality that we have sinned, that we are dead, that we deserve eternal death, that we deserve hell, and that we wake up to the reality and the truth that God so loved the world, including rebels like you and me, that he sent his only son, and Jesus died in our place for our sin, and he rose again on the third day, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Now listen, I, I, I confess, I'm with, if, if you're nervous about that, I, I'm with you. It's, it's terrifying to come into the light. It's terrifying to confess your sin. It's terrifying to acknowledge, I, I'm not God, he is, and I'm in trouble. It's terrifying because we're giving up control, we're exposed. But it's by coming into the light, confessing our sin, confessing our need, that we find forgiveness it's there we find salvation in Jesus. So friends, if you're here in this building or online and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, turn from your sin and look to Jesus. Trust in him. Just as a serpent was raised up in the wilderness, don't look to your good works. Don't look to your self-effort. Don't look to anything else. Look to Christ. He has been, the Son of Man has been lifted up for our salvation and God promises to forgive if we will trust in him. Now, friends, if you are a Christian, how do you apply this second part of the text? Well, maybe you're a member of First Baptist. Maybe you've walked with Christ for years, for decades. But at some point, you started to compromise. No one else knows this, but you know it. You started making sinful choices. You felt bad about it at first, but you swept under the carpet. You got away with it kind of moved on, passes the past, but it's still there and it's nagging at you when you go to bed at night. The guilt has eaten at your soul for years. And, 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 and honestly, you want to come clean. You want to, you want to come into the light. You want to step into the light. You want to confess your sin, but it's terrifying. <laughs> what would people think of me if they found out what I did? And so you just remain silent. Or it could be that your sin has begun to snowball. And the sin that was once manageable is now unmanageable. And you, you know you're about to be exposed, and it's terrifying. 
What do you do? When Jesus comes into the room as the light of the world, and everything inside of you wants to hide so as not to be exposed, so that people think well of you, like they thought well of Nicodemus, what do you do? Christian, what do you do? You step into the light. You, 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 you do what he says in verse 21. You do what is true. You, you step into the light. You confess the reality, the truth about your sin. You step into the light. You confess the reality that God exists and that he is holy. You step into the light and, and you come clean. No matter what the consequences are. No matter what people think about you. Why would anyone do that? Look at the end of verse 21 so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Friends, when when people look at First Baptist, they should not say, well, look at how amazing those people are. Look how clean and moral and upright moral citizens they are. No, they should look at this church and say, whew, that's a messed up bunch of people. But what they're doing is being carried out in God. The reason that we Christians feel free to come to the light and to confess our sin to God and to trusted friends is because we know we're not saved by our works. We're saved by grace. And when we come into the light and receive God's forgiveness, God is glorified. It becomes clear we're a broken group of sinners loved and forgiven by God. We are a weak group of believers whose works have been carried out in God. So friends, step into the light. We must be born again to see the kingdom of God. And we must step into the light. And when we do, we meet a gracious and loving God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish, but have eternal life. Amen. Let's pray together.